Father, this morning we uh, just call upon uh, the name of our Lord Jesus and ask for his help. Uh, we, are, um, we are once again reminded of our dependence and our need for him. And so we, we ask that our minds would be alert, uh, that our hearts would be warm to your truth. Uh, Lord, we pray that our own battles with sin, um, with pride, would be confronted by your Spirit. Uh, allow the, the truths uh, that Jesus taught his disciples here in this passage to also be instructional, be teaching for us this morning. Uh, and I pray that you would, uh, you would bless this hour as we, as we study this text together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I do have a handout for you here this morning. Uh, so I'll get this. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate it. And when you get this handout, um, I, it, it comes with a caveat warning as well, just like last week. The answers aren't on the back this time. Sorry. Um, but... But there's just a, there's just a um, kind of an outline you can follow. So the main purpose of this handout is it gives you an outline you can follow, but it doesn't have the details, so you can fill them in if you want taking notes. Don't feel bad if you don't quite get them all filled in, per se. But then at the bottom, the last section of our text, verses 42 through 50, are actually included there. And that's kind of strange. I didn't give you 30 through 50. I just gave you 42 through 50, um, but there's, there's a reason we'll see when we get there. So don't be confused by that bit of it. Um, so just we'll use this a little bit as just, just help guide our attention as we walk through this passage. I'd, I'd like you to do a little bit of an experiment in your imagination with me this morning. And I want you to... Imagine that I just gave you a blank sheet of paper. I guess you could make this very realistic if you flip that sheet of paper over um, and you don't even have to use your imagination. But I just asked you to list off the meaning or significance of the cross of Christ, of the death of Jesus on, on a blank sheet of paper. What kinds of things would you list? Think first before you speak, but... What kinds of things, if you were making a list of the significance of the meaning of the death of Christ, what would you put on that list? Um, let's, let's just begin by, by just kind of in a popcorn kind of way, throw out some answers that you would have to that question. Like quick one-word statements. Redemption. That captures a ton. What else? God loved us and sent his son. Okay, good. What did she say? An expression of God's love. God loved us and sent his son. What else would we say about the meaning of the death of Jesus? Sacrifice. A sin payment. Is that what you said, Sue? Good. We can keep on going. Sacrifice. Good. He was placed on the cross as a criminal. Okay, he died as a, as a criminal. 
I like the direction we're going there. What, what, what else could we say? He was our substitute. Okay, now we're talking about what that criminal death was. He was in our place as a substitute. So we're starting to talk about the doctrine of justification, right? We, we could keep going with this activity for a very long time. As a matter of fact, when I was a teenager, um, I remember my dad had us read for family devotions around the dinner table. He had us read a little book by John Piper. The title of it has changed a couple times, I think. But the title at that time, I think, was 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. 50 reasons. And he may not have exhausted all of them in that book. Right? So the meaning and significance of Jesus' death is, is broad, it's wide. We're looking at one passage today that isn't going to answer every one of those reasons, right? But the passage we're going to look at today is actually going to move in some directions about the meaning and significance of Jesus' death that we don't as commonly think about. All of the answers we just gave are not the answers that this passage, it was a little risky that I, I did this, this study, but I, I expected that when we gave our first answers to that question, what's the meaning of Jesus' death? We wouldn't think about the answers this passage gives. The answers this passage gives, I'm sorry? No, I just said he died on the cross for our sins. Yeah, and we didn't even say specifically for our sins, but I, certainly those are like at the heart of the gospel, and I'm not in any way de-emphasizing that. But in Mark's gospel, when Mark starts to show us some of the meaning of Jesus' death, he actually starts by focusing in a different direction. And I think that should capture our attention. It should arrest us this morning. So as we turn to Mark chapter 9 again, let's just recall a bit of the larger picture. Uh, we had a couple more people walk in. Jeff, did you get this? And Vaughn? Yep. So let's just recall a little bit. We're not going to go too far with this, but a little bit of the big picture of our study so far. Uh, remember, in the first eight chapters, um, just to kind of summarize things, we saw a lot that was emphasizing Jesus' identity, answering the question, who is Jesus? Right? Um, and that really came to a climax when, Jesus, when um, Peter said about Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the King, right? And that comes in the middle of, of chapter 8. But, but even in, in the first uh, eight chapters of Mark, uh, Mark has already started to touch on two other questions, why Jesus came to die and what it means to follow him. But he didn't emphasize those questions as much. He started to, to kind of bleed into those topics but now moving into chapter, the last part of chapter 8 and then through the rest of the book, he really leans into these questions even more. Remember back in chapter 8, Jesus told his disciples right after Peter said, you are the Christ, Jesus told his disciples for the first time, yeah, and I'm going to die, right? He told them that, and how did Peter respond? He said, let's not talk that way. Right? We don't like to hear talk, people talk about death in general, let alone you know, our Lord talking about his own death. And Jesus' response demonstrates that, he, that Peter totally misunderstood and 
he begins then to go on to teach them. What does Jesus teach? As soon as, as, soon as Peter confesses, you're the Lord, Jesus said, yes, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. What does Jesus turn around and start doing? He starts to focus on the cost of discipleship in his instruction. He starts to teach them about, you know, you need to take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself. And the rest of Jesus' teaching starts to move in that, in that direction. So it's, it's like Jesus is uh, understanding what his disciples need in his coming absence. So he starts to prepare them for that, for that time. So notice how our passage now begins in chapter 9 and verse 30. We're going to just take this one section at a time. So we're going to read verses 30 through 32. We'll talk about it. And then we'll go on to the next section. Okay, so let's read chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 32. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so that, I believe, is really the first teachable moment in our passage going from verse 30 to 50. And we're going to look at these four teachable moments. And at first glance, when you read them, they might appear to be separate and disconnected. But Mark brings them together, I think, to answer the question at the heart of this specific teachable moment. The question at the heart of it is really clear, right? Jesus is very direct, and he tells his disciples that he is going to die and that he will rise again. For the purposes of our time together, we're really going to focus on the meaning of the death of Jesus' uh, death. Because I don't think the significance of the resurrection is fully in view in this passage quite yet. It's there, but it's a little bit more in the background. Um, so... Um, let's see here. So I, I think Mark is bringing all of these teachable moments together underneath the head here of this teachable moment where he's teaching about his death. And there's a question at the center of that. The question of, at the center of that is really, what is the meaning of his death? Notice how the exchange goes, right? It's fairly familiar to us already. What happened last time? when Jesus taught them about his death in chapter 8? Understanding or not understanding? <laughs> right? They didn't understand. What happens this time when Jesus teaches them about his death? The, the word is like a word for ignorance, um, which doesn't really mean in this case they didn't understand the nouns and verbs. Like, they understood the words Jesus said because it made them afraid it says, but they didn't, they didn't comprehend its significance. They did not understand the meaning of Jesus' death. And I think what Jesus goes on to do in the rest of these teachable moments is to show us how the cross shapes discipleship. How the cross shapes discipleship. All right, look at verse 30 with me just to get into the details a little bit here. Um, where were they? Where were they passing through? 
Galilee. And why is Galilee significant up to this point? This, is, this has been the center of Jesus' ministry up to this point. But what does he do in Galilee here now? Does he call the crowds for more ministry? No, there's a significant shift at this point where he's in this place that was the center of his ministry, but he doesn't want people to know he's there. Why? What does the passage say his reason is? Because he's teaching the disciples something at this point that they really need to grasp, right? So his, his focus and his energy, his attention, is on equipping his disciples for his coming departure. So we need to understand this passage. The word that says he was teaching there is actually a word that has this kind of continuing sense in its grammar. Like, this wasn't like, hey, in verse 30, he taught, I'm going to die. And then, and, and then it was like the teaching was done. It actually reaches back, like all the way back to chapter 8. He was teaching about his coming death. He was continuing to teach about his coming death. So the grammar here indicates that this is uh, the, the, the head here talking about his death and why his death was significant carries into the rest of the material. They're not just totally unrelated. So teachable moment number one really is this. What does Jesus' death mean for those who follow him? Um, what does Jesus' death mean? And you can add on for those who follow him. Jesus teaches about his death, and his disciples don't understand its significance and its meaning. I think this is really clear from the text, and it's really clear from the prior story in chapter 8 where he did the same thing. And you know what's going to happen? In chapter 10, he's going to tell them about his death again. And you know what's going to happen? Uh, I think it's uh, James and John are going to come and say, hey, where do we get our best seats at the table? <laughs> right? They misunderstand again. So this is not accidental. The fact that Mark brings these three cases of the death of Christ and the disciples' misunderstanding is a major feature to this portion of Mark's gospel that indicates us this is what this section is about. What does Jesus' death mean for his disciples? So, when we think about this question, um, like we started this morning, there's many correct answers to the significance of the death of Christ, right? Many correct answers. Uh, there are also many incorrect answers that we're not going to focus on today. Um, but it's worth pausing here for us to reflect and ask the question, could it be possible that we're also a bit like the disciples having some misunderstanding about the death of Jesus? At least having some gaps in our comprehension of its significance for us as we follow him. Could, could that be possible for you? Could, could you be like Peter or hear like all 12 of the disciples, not, not fully grasping the significance of the death of Jesus in your life? Are there possibly any disconnections between our good theology about the cross and the way we go about living our lives? I, I think it's important for us to notice going forward here is that the meaning that Mark draws from the death of Jesus at this point actually focuses more on the way we live our lives than on anything else. It really is a question of what does the death of Jesus mean 
for those who follow him. That is, for those who live their lives as his disciple. And so we see that the death of Jesus can never merely be an academic thing for us. We must see it as a call for discipleship. All right, so now we move on to verses 33 through 37. This is the second teachable moment, and um, I want you to hear when I say teachable moment, I want you to hear the kind of thing you might know as a parent with children who need some lessons taught, right? Sometimes those teachable moments are times of some friction and some conflict, and that's, that's what's going on here in this passage as well. So let's look at verses 33 through 37. Let's read them first. So now they, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? What a great question. Um, it's not a bad question just to you know, have a chat about in, in general, but he's not accidental in asking this question. Look at what, they, what happens in verse 34. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, so let's, let's talk about the teachable moment number two here. And um, so this teachable moment, in this teachable moment, to summarize it, Jesus' death calls disciples to the greatness of serving. So Jesus' death, um, so what does Jesus' death mean? It calls disciples to the greatness of serving. Okay, and I'm actually going to put a ellipses there on the end as well, because I want to fill this in. What does this serving look like? And I think it looks like making space for those with no status. Making space for those with no status. That's a little bit of a strange way to say it. We'll come back and fill in the details here. Okay, so at this point... Um, even though we don't have, you know, Peter standing up when Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to die. And, and then the next passage, you know, Peter stands up and says, this is never going to happen. Even though we don't have that level of rebuke of the Lord, we still have a very stark contrast after Jesus has taught, I'm going to die, right? A very, very stark contrast. Uh, a, a complete opposite kind of, it, it's obvious for all of us that here, on the one hand, we have Jesus saying, I'm going to die, which is self-sacrifice, which is putting others before himself, right? We see that. And then on the other hand, we have the disciples, you know, bantering on the road about, you know, who's going to be king of the mountain, uh, about who's going to rule in the kingdom, about who's going to have the best seat, and so on. So um, we see that the disciples here in this moment act like guilty children who've been found out, right? Jesus asks, and they're not willing to say anything. And it's, I mean, Jesus knows, um, 
they don't tell, but you know what he does next in his teaching moment demonstrates he knows what's going on as he interacts with them. Um, maybe as they were talking on the road, we don't know how it started. Uh, we don't know what arguments they made. Maybe one of them you know, made the case that he had walked on, on water. Um, maybe another made the case that he was the first called. Maybe another made the case that, you know, he held the, he held the budget, he held the purse. Um, <clears throat> maybe the question arose about who would be the leader in Jesus' absence. We're just not, we're not sure, we're not told those details. <coughs> Excuse me. I think I had a cup of water. So uh, we, we all kind of snicker when we see this very stark contrast, right? Like, how, how could they have this conversation here at this point? And my safe bet is that most of us have never actually had a debate in this church about who the greatest in the church is. I think that's a fairly safe bet, right? Have you had that conversation? I have not dared to be so bold as to talk to somebody else in this church about who the greatest in this church is. I've not done it. I'm not going to do it. So does that mean I don't have a problem with the problem the disciples had here? It's actually very interesting that in Greek culture at this time, humility was never viewed as a virtue. It's actually a very interesting fact of history. That it is within Christianity, that is post the ministry of Jesus Christ, that virtue, that, that humility starts to be viewed in the Western world at times, not by everyone in every case, but as a virtue. Pick up books on leadership today in, written by Americans, and they will hold up humility as a virtue. Look at, look at great leaders in American history. And who you think of often are individuals who demonstrated humanity even as they led a nation or did great things, right? So there's a way in which Jesus' teaching here has had a long-reaching impact on broader society in such a way that we almost think, yeah, like, we, we have been changed by what Jesus taught here culturally. That doesn't mean we've been transformed in our hearts necessarily. Because in my heart... I may have had the conversation about who's greatest in this church without ever opening my mouth and saying it to anybody else, right? Do you see what I'm trying to get at with that? It's kind of a tricky thing to understand because we can dismiss ourselves from the application of this passage when we, when we shouldn't. In, in Jesus' day, humility was not on anyone's list of virtues. It is on our list of virtues today, but that doesn't change whether or not we need the instruction of this passage. So um, Jesus gives this great sermon in one sentence. If anyone be, would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And to this great sermon, he adds a radical living parable. Look at verse 36. Look at the deliberateness to what is stated here in verse 36. There's three verbs that are used. Jesus in verse 36, he says he took the child. That's one step, right? So it's like he, he's in this, in this home, and maybe Peter or Andrew's son is there, you know, le less than 10 years old, perhaps. I, I'm guessing in these details, right? But 
But that, that child is on the periphery, right? That child is, you know, sitting up on top of the refrigerator or um, not, not right there in the best seats in, the, in front and center in the discussion, right? And, and Jesus goes in and brings that child down into, it says, so he, he took the child and then he put him in the midst of them, gives them this prominent seat. And, and then it says he took him in his arms. And I mean, just even that, that strange kind of sequence shows a deliberateness to what Jesus is slowing down and emphasizing with his disciples. And Mark doesn't usually slow down, right? But he is here. So look at this child called out among the disciples, placed in the middle of Peter and James and John. Rightly our heroes, these men, now, at this point in our lives, as as 21st century Christians. Look at this child placed in the middle of them, lifted into Jesus' arms. In, In American culture, we exalt the position and status of children. And there's, there's something healthy about the fact that we respect and value children in American culture today. Not so here in this room that, where Jesus is doing this. This is totally against the values of the culture of their day. The child in Jesus' life and times represented the lowest level on the social scale. Um, so it can be hard for us to connect to this in some ways because we don't think of kids in the same way that they did. Maybe a modern-day illustration would be like an, an immigrant in the world today. Somebody who has no credentials, who has no status. Um, I have lived the life of a privileged immigrant living overseas. And even there, I felt this kind of statuslessness, this kind of childlikeness. Uh, in, in that context. It, it's helpful for us to try and think about you know, who, who this character might be for us now. Notice that Jesus doesn't actually tell us here when he brings that child, he doesn't actually tell us in this case that we should be like children. We read that in other gospel accounts. You know, Unless you become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven, he says in Matthew's gospel, in a similar kind of st- story. But that's not what Mark says here. That's not what Jesus says here as Mark records it. What does he say here? He says, um, whoever receives one such child, right, in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus here tells us instead, not about becoming like the child, but about receiving one such child. So, tying things back to the sermon's main point, whoever wants to be great should be last of all. Here's a child that is last of all. You want to be great? Receive somebody like this. And that's where I draw the connection with um, the death of Jesus calls disciples to the greatness of serving, specifically in what kind of way? By making space for those with no status. The term here, receive, is an interesting term, right? It's not one that we commonly use to talk about um, how we interact with people. Um, But what does it make you start to think of when you think of receiving someone? What? 
Okay, accepted. Good. What other <coughs> kinds of categories of showing value? Showing people value. Good. You're kind of focusing on the emotional or attitude kind of side of it. What are some more even like behavior way, behavioral ways that we can show we're receiving people? Respect. Okay. Good. Medicine, like the team is doing, giving okay. care. Okay, all right. Yeah, to provide some basic care. What about, like, receiving a guest into one's home? That's one of the ways we use that ter term maybe a little bit more. Maybe. Like, uh, it's a kind of, like, showing hospitality to somebody in one, in one sense. That's actually a lot of what this term means. It might be better to think of it as to, to welcome, which captures kind of the attitude that you're describing of respecting and valuing, right? To, to give welcome to people. Um, we, we can't underestimate the value of a proactive approach to somebody on some Sunday morning and saying, Bill, it's good to see you. You know, and I mean, in America, it's shaking a hand. Um, but like, that, that like moving towards people and identifying that I appreciate you and I, I welcome you. That, that's a, a very simple kind of description of what might be involved here. Um, but I think even moving further to really understand it in our lives today, making space for people is a really helpful way in my mind to describe Christian hospitality. So... The death of Jesus means it calls disciples to the greatness of serving by making space for others. Making space. Um, this is actually a term that an author, I can't even remember his name, I think it's something like Jeremy Lineman or something, uh, a little book on why we're lonely in the church. He defines, he defines hospita hospitality this way. Making space for others in our lives. That can involve our schedules, it can involve our physical space in our homes, but how much more does it involve an opening of our hearts to people to, to show that I'm not just going to be a participant observer, a spectator here at Union Lake Baptist Church, but I am going to actually open up my heart and my life to the brothers and sisters here in a way that says welcome, that says there's space for you. And that's what Jesus is inviting his disciples to do. And how does his death do that? Oh, how does his death call his disciples to that? I mean, what is his death? But a wide open welcome and invitation, making space for us who do not deserve to have that space made. Right? And it's indiscriminate in its offer to, like, there's no credentials required. Apart from knowing your neediness and, and calling out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? So what does the death of Jesus mean? It means it calls disciples to the greatness of serving by making space for people with no status. Teachable moment number one. We've got two more. And the third one is a, is a very challenging one. So we may not have a ton of time for number three. Let's go on to number two. I'm sorry. Number three, yeah, it's a strange structure that I've got here. All right, um, number, number three, teachable moment number three, Jesus' death invites disciples to widen the circle of who we identify with. 
Um, so it invites us to, and this is similar to the, the previous one, but a little bit different. Widen the circle, and I'm just going to stop there, but of those who we identify with. Jesus' death invites us to widen the circle of who we identify with. Look with me at verses 38 through 41. So, having just heard what Jesus taught in the recent past, we don't know exactly how quickly these events transpire from one teaching moment to the other, but they're, they're closely together, and Mark brings them together on purpose. So here's, here's what John has to say. He says, hey, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. I think he might have gotten his pronouns wrong there. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us, for us, Jesus uses the same plural that John did graciously. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So let's just take a quick vote. Um, how many of you feel like John really understood uh, teachable moment number two? Mm, maybe not quite there yet, right? We're still seeing this stark contrast they, they don't understand, what does Jesus' death really mean? It's really hard to imagine what, it, I'm sorry, it's actually not hard to imagine what might have been going on in John's mind here. The disciples are on this insider track with their status with Jesus, right? I mean, Peter, James, and John were up on the mountain. They saw Moses, they saw Elijah, and they saw the glory of the Lord, right? And then they come down the mountain and the other nine aren't able to cast out this demon. It's a little embarrassing. And here's this other guy who's not one of the 12. He's not spending time you know, under Jesus' teaching, but in his name, he's successfully casting out demons. And, and John doesn't like it, right? It's ironic here uh, that John is concerned about this guy having success casting out demons when the disciples had just been unable to do the same. So John's motives apparently, visibly, they, they appear wrong. But Jesus here, he doesn't stop this man. He doesn't support John's attitude. And he gives three reasons why. Do you see that in the passage? See how there's the word for, F-O-R, like because? There's for, this, and this, and this. He gives three of those four statements. The first one is, for no one doing miracles in my name can e speak evil of me very soon afterwards. Like, that's not going to happen. And then the second, one, the second one is, the one who is not against us is for us. And then the third one is, anyone who even shows a small act of kindness because you belong to me, like giving you a cup of water, uh, even, even somebody who does that, um, they for sure will not lose their reward. So let's, let's talk about what Jesus is doing here with each of these reasons. The first one, no one doing miracles in my name can, can speak evil of me. I, I think Jesus' argument here is that the man is actually accomplishing these miracles in a way that gives honor to Jesus' name rather than rivaling him. So Jesus is not saying, 
Look, if some shyster just tags Jesus' name onto some supposed miracle he does, well, he's good. He, like, there's something mystical about Jesus' name, and he won't be able to speak evil of Jesus later. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. When he uses that in his name terminology, he's, he's saying, for my sake. He's saying, in submission to me as the Lord here, right? So we need to be careful as we understand this passage, what the context of it is. Um, Jesus has blessed this unnamed man's miracles with success. Like when this man did this miracle in Jesus' name, it wasn't through his own power that he did it. The, the, The one who accomplished that exorcism of that demon was Jesus, right? Jesus blessed that man's miracle in this context, in this scenario. Jesus had had been clearly presented as the king already in Mark's gospel. You are the Christ, Peter had declared. Do you think that maybe he might have control over things that are happening away from his small band of disciples? Maybe. Maybe the, the thing that God is doing in this world is not just the thing here in Commerce, Michigan. Perhaps, right? That kind, of, that kind of regional, sectarian view of God's purposes in the world is too small for what Jesus is up to. So, no one can do miracles in my name um, and then quickly speak evil of me. Then number two, the one who is not against us is for us. This is an interesting one here. The one who is not against us is for us. This proverbial statement, it seems a little enigmatic. Like, does this mean, well, you know, Hindus... They, they're not opposed to, you know, believing in the teachings of Jesus. So, you know, they're not, they're not against us, so they're for us. Jesus' inclusiveness here is not that inclusive. That is not what he is communicating here. Notice what he says later. He says, if somebody gives you a cup of water because you belong to me, that's in my name again, then these things apply. Um. So the context here in this proverb is only applicable to certain scenarios. We don't apply this proverb to Hindus who are happy to accept some of the teaching of Jesus without openly, openly they don't openly say they hate him, so this must apply to them. That's not, that's not what's in view here. It applies to things that are done within the sphere of those who do things in Jesus' name. Okay? Um, so we have some limits to how this applies. And then notice in, verse, in the next section, or the next reason Jesus gives, anyone who shows a small act of kindness to those who belong to Christ will not lose their reward. So how do we apply this? Well, even think about that cup of water. Um, in the culture of the day, um, giving somebody a cup of water was considered a, a form of, um, of kindness that didn't hardly even deserve a thank you. Like, it was, just, it was just part of, like, general hospitality uh, in, in the world, an, ex, ex, an expected part of hospitality. So there would be no reward for doing something like that. But Jesus is saying even the, even the most minimal act of kindness in the name of Christ to those who belong to him will not go unrewarded. So how do we then apply this in our lives today? I think what this is, is it's a call for us to to widen the circle, so to speak, to widen the circle of who we identify with. Uh, This is a call for us to be, in some ways, not in every way,
but in some ways to be more broad-minded. A union like Baptist church should not be so Baptist that we act as if the Presbyterian churches in our area, you know, they don't really, like, like act as if they oppose the work of Christ. That's, that's kind of what was happening in John's mentality here. A kind of sectarianism, like it's us and just us kind of mentality. This is opposed to the meaning and significance of the death of Christ. We should have a, a heart that is just as inclusive as Jesus's as he died on the cross. There, there's a beautiful, non-discriminating nature to the death of Christ. He, he does not draw the circle between some of the boundaries we draw within the Christian faith. Please understand I'm saying within the Christian faith. Okay? It, it certainly doesn't mean it's wrong for us to have particular doctrine about specific topics like what baptism means. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. But for us to treat as complete outsiders, those who are within the scope of the meaning of the death of Jesus, is opposed to what is being taught here. All right, we're running out of time. Teachable moment number four. Let's read this passage and just make some closing reflections on it because it's a, it's a lot for us to try and process. But here I have... I have it in your notes on purpose because the way I printed it in your notes, it prints out a little bit more like poetry than just like prose, okay, or just like a story. Because there's a lot of parallelism in this passage that it's helpful for you to see. So maybe read it from this handout here. Excuse me. So verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, one of which little ones? One of these childlike believers who have no status, right? Not just kids, but, but everybody in this room. We're all one of these little ones, okay? So whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and be thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled then with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Wow. There's a, there's a lot of questions that that portion of this text raises for us. Here's how I would like to summarize it for you. Teachable moment number four. Jesus' death challenges his disciples to face temptation with seriousness and suffering with savoriness. Okay? Face temptation with seriousness and suffering with savoriness. Savoriness. It, it actually gives you an error for your spelling if you type out savoriness in Microsoft Word. Um, but we're going to go with it. Savoriness. 
Okay? Treat temptation seriously. Notice that there's two temptations in view here. Actually, more than that. The first temptation is talking about somebody who would cause another to stumble. And we, we use the word to stumble and to sin, and those aren't really the right words. It means for their faith to be destroyed. We're not just talking about Bill getting offended because of the music I listen to. It's too boring for him or whatever. We're not talking about some kind of superficial offense. We're talking about refusing fellowship with somebody in such a way, doing things that actually harm their faith, right? And what is, what is, what is Jesus teaching here? He's teaching that the, the millstone a donkey pulls that grinds grain is, is going to be hung around that person's neck, and they're immediately going to be drowned. That's how serious we should take causing other little ones to stumble in their faith, okay? And then he turns around and he says, no, I'm not just talking about you causing that to somebody else. I'm also talking about your own struggle with temptation yourself. There should be a seriousness about that as well. And he uses the hand and the foot and the eye to represent everything, like what we do, where we go, what we see and desire. In all of these things, the death of Christ, I mean, think about it. There is no sin that is worth going to hell for. Jesus died for those sins. And, and Jesus isn't making these points visible to the disciples yet in this moment as he teaches it, but it is visible to us as we look back. The death of Jesus means we should take sin seriously. And you, you have to read this passage with this repetition of, it is better, it is better, it is better to be lame, one-eyed, one-footed, one-handed, than to allow that sin to, to condemn you, right? It's not worth it. And so there's a very serious call in this passage. The death of Christ invites that kind of seriousness about sin. But then it turns around and uses this salt metaphor. We don't have time to go into the details of the salt metaphor. But I think basically what he's saying is there should be something that is sweet. I know, salt isn't sweet. Something that is, is remarkably visible to the watching world about how we even treat little ones, how we welcome them, that is savory in our testimony, that is peaceable. He ends with being at peace with one another. And so the death of Christ invites us to that as well, to, to a kind of suffering. That's where the fire comes in with savoriness. I'm sorry we ran out of time and we can't fully dive into this section um, but let's, let's wrap it up there. Uh, we, we should run to, um, to the sanctuary here now uh, so we don't get in trouble with the boss. All right? Thank you for, for the, the time together studying this passage.